<clears throat> my dear brothers and sisters, I thank my Father in heaven that he's prolonged my life to be a part of these challenging times. I thank him for the opportunity of service. I have no desire but to do all that I can in furthering the work of the Lord, in serving his faithful people, and in living at peace with my neighbors. I recently traveled around the world more than 25,000 miles, visiting Alaska, Russia, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, India, Kenya, and Nigeria, where in this last place we dedicated a new temple. We then dedicated the Newport Beach, California temple. I've just been to Samoa for another temple dedication, another 10,000 miles. I do not enjoy travel. But it is my wish to get out among our people, to extend appreciation and encouragement, and to bear testimony of the divinity of the Lord's work. I often think of a poem I read long ago. It goes like this. Let me live in a house by the side of the road where the races of men go by men who are good and men who are bad, as good and as bad as I. I would not sit in the scorner's seat nor hurl the cynic's ban. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. That is the way I feel. Age does something to a man. It seems to make him more aware of the need for kindness and goodness and forbearance. He wishes and prays that men might live together in peace without war and contention, argument and conflict. He grows increasingly aware of the meaning of the great atonement of the Redeemer, of the depth of his sacrifice, and of gratitude to the Son of God who gave his life that we might live. I wish today to speak of forgiveness. I think it may be the greatest virtue on earth and certainly the most needed. There is so much of meanness and abuse, of intolerance and hatred. There is so great a need for repentance and forgiveness. It is the great principle emphasized in all of Scripture, both ancient and modern. In all of our sacred Scripture, there is no more beautiful story of forgiveness than that of the prodigal son found in the 15th chapter of Luke. Everyone should read and ponder it occasionally. I quote, and when the prodigal had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. 
And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father caused that a great feast should be held. And when his other son complained, he said to him, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. When there has been wrongdoing, and then there has come repentance followed by forgiveness, then literally the offender who was lost is found, and he who was dead is made alive. How wonderful are the blessings of mercy and forgiveness! The Marshall Plan following World War II with the gift of millions of dollars helped put Europe on its feet. In Japan, after this same war, I saw great steel mills, the money for which I was told had come from America, Japan's former enemy. How much better this world is because of the forgiveness of a generous nation in behalf of its former enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord taught, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Those are very strong words. Do you really think you could follow that injunction? They are the words of the Lord Himself, and I think they apply to each of us. <clears throat> The scribes and Pharisees brought before, a Je before Jesus a woman taken in adultery so that they might entrap him.
But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The Savior taught of leaving the ninety and nine to find the lost sheep that forgiveness and restitution might come. Isaiah declared, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings for before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The great crowning love of the Savior was expressed when in his dying agony he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In our day, the Lord has said in Revelation, Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth become condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. The Lord has offered a marvelous promise. Said he, He who has repented of his sins the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. There are so many in our day who are unwilling to forgive and forget. Children cry and wives weep because fathers and husbands continue to bring up little shortcomings that are really of no importance. And there also are many women who would make a mountain out of every little offending molehill of word or deed. <clears throat> a time back, I clipped a column from the Deseret Morning News written by J. Evenson. With his permission, I quote from a part of it. Wrote he, How would you feel toward a teenager 
who decided to toss a 20-pound frozen turkey from a speeding car headlong into the windshield of the car you were driving. How would you feel after enduring six hours of surgery using metal plates and other hardware to piece your face together? And after learning you still face years of therapy before returning to normal and that you ought to feel lucky you didn't die or suffer permanent brain damage? And how would you feel after learning that your assailant and his buddies had the turkey in the first place because they had stolen a credit card and gone on a selfish shopping spree just for kicks. This is the kind of hideous crime that propels politicians to offices on promises of getting tough on crime. It's the kind of thing that prompts legislators to climb all over each other in a struggle to be the first to introduce a bill that would, would add enhanced penalties for the use of frozen fowl in the commission of a crime. <laughs> the New York Times quoted the district attorney as saying, this is the sort of crime for which fixed vict victims feel no punishment is harsh enough. Death doesn't even satisfy them, he said which is what makes what really happened so unusual. The, the victim, Victorio Rivolo, a 44-year-old former manager of a collections agency, was more interested in salvaging the life of her 19-year-old assailant, Ryan Cushing, than exacting any sort of revenge. She pestered prosecutors for information about him, his life, how he was raised, and so forth. Then she insisted on offering him a plea deal. Cushing could serve six months in the county jail and be on probation for five years if he pleaded guilty to second-degree assault. Had he been convicted of first-degree assault, the charge most fitting for the crime, he could have served 25 years in prison, finally thrown back into society as a middle-aged man with no skills or prospects. But this is only half the story. The rest of it, what happened the day this all played out in court, is the tru truly remarkable part. According to an account in the New York Post, Cushing carefully and tentatively made his way to where Ruvolo sat in the courtroom and tearfully whispered an apology. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. Ruvolo then stood, and the victim and her assailant embraced, weeping, she stroked his head and patted his back as he sobbed. And witnesses, including a Times reporter, heard her say, <coughs> It's okay. 
I just want you to make your life the best it can be. According to accounts, hardened prosecutors and even reporters were choking back tears. What a great story that is, greater because it actually happened and that it happened in tough old New York. Who can feel anything but admiration for this woman who forgave the young man who might have taken her life? I know this is a delicate and sensitive thing of which I'm speaking. There are hardened criminals who may have to be locked up. There are unspeakable crimes such as deliberate murder and rape that justify harsh penalties. But there are some who could be saved from the long, stultifying years in prison because of an unthoughtful, foolish act. Somehow forgiveness, with love and tolerance, accomplishes miracles that can happen in no other way. The Great Atonement was the supreme act of forgiveness. The magnitude of that atonement is beyond our ability to completely understand. I know only that it happened and that it was for me and for you. The suffering was so great, the agony so intense, that none of us can comprehend it when the Savior offered himself as a ransom for all the sins of mankind. It is through him that we gain forgiveness. It is through him that there comes the certain promise that all mankind will be granted the blessings of salvation with resurrection from the dead. It is through him and his great overarching sacrifice that we are offered the opportunity through obedience of exaltation and eternal life. May God help us to be a little kinder, showing forth greater forbearance, to be more forgiving, more willing to walk the second mile, to reach down and lift up those who may have sinned but have brought forth the fruits of repentance, to lay aside old grudges and nurture them no more. For this I humbly pray in the sacred name of our Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, today I desire to express my deep feelings of reverence and love for our Father in Heaven, for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the Holy Spirit. I further bear my witness of the sacred call of President Gordon B. Hinckley as the Lord's prophet, seer, and revelator. I sustain him with all my heart and energy. I am grateful for the covenant of marriage in the temple to a gracious eternal companion whom I love. She continuously sets an example of caring service to those who are in need. Our marriage has been blessed with faithful and energetic children who have taught us much and continue to do so. I feel particularly blessed that my brother, sisters, and I were born of righteous parents 
who have remained faithful to their temple covenants and have willingly sacrificed all that we might be securely invested in our Heavenly Father's plan. To my angel mother, I can only say thank you for keeping the chain of love and gospel ordinances strong in our lives. I have mentioned these sacred relationships because of the happiness that I feel knowing there is a binding covenant with each of them sealed in the Holy Temple. I am profoundly grateful to know that regardless of any challenges that yet await us, there is hope and confidence in knowing that by keeping the covenants of the gospel, all of the momentary trials of life can be transcended. The scriptures teach us that all will, be eventually, will eventually be well as we are faithful to our covenants. King Benjamin taught, And because of the, a covenant which ye have made, ye shall have, have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ. Therefore I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found in the right hand of God. Giving careful attention to covenant-making is critical to our eternal salvation. Covenants are agreements we make with our Heavenly Father in which we commit our hearts, minds, and behavior to keeping the commandments defined by the Lord. As we are faithful in keeping our agreement, He covenants or promises to bless us ultimately with all He has. In the Old Testament, we are taught the Lord's covenant pattern in Noah's experience with a wicked world and the Lord's plan for cleansing the earth. Because of Noah's faithful, steadfast commitment, the Lord said unto him, But with thee I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives, and with thee. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. After the floods were abated, they went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons who were with him, saying, And behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. We, too, have entered into sacred covenants, brothers and sisters, with the Lord, that we might be preserved from the adverse adversary. Just as in Noah's time, we live in a day of prophetic promise and fulfillment. In the course of the past seven years, 71 new temples have been dedicated, a feat under the direction of the Lord's prophet, which may in some way be like the building of the ark in Noah's day. Our living president, President Gordon B. Hinckley, has invited us to come through the door of the temple where we can enter into covenants with the Lord. As in Noah's day, our efforts to live these covenants may often be accompanied by a measure of sacrifice. This sacrifice, regardless of how great or small, often determines how committed in mind and heart we are to be submissive to the will of our Heavenly Father. The pattern of sacrifice often includes a season of struggle where we must evaluate and weigh the consequences of our decisions. Choices may not always be clear or easy, so we struggle on. When we finally determine to rid ourselves of struggle and to sacrifice our will for the Lord's, we are lifted to a new level of understanding. This process is often more recognizable in our lives when we experience a significant tragedy or challenge. Just a few weeks ago, a young man while on a scout camp in the mountains east of Salt Lake City was struck by lightning, which took his life. 
His parents, grief-stricken and devastated at the sudden loss of their son, struggled quietly and asked, Why did this happen? Because their hearts were submissive and their faith strong, there came a great outpouring of love from the Lord. In the midst of their, their grief came a quiet, tender resolve to accept without anger the outcome of their experience. With their acceptance came the larger vision of the purpose of life and a remembrance of the covenants that were in place. Though still filled with anguish from their sudden loss, they found themselves standing on, higher, on a higher plane, committed to hold even faster to their covenants and to live such that they might be assured of a joyful reunion with their son. In this dispensation of time, covenant-making has taken on a new perspective, different from the days of Noah. We are not only responsible to make covenants for ourselves, but additionally we have been given the responsibility to search out our kindred dead and open the door for all who desire to make covenants and worthily receive the gospel ordinances. The work among those who have lived previously is aggressively going forward with the forces of heaven commissioned by the Lord. In President Joseph F. Smith's vision of the dead, he records, But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth. I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption. The scriptures further teach us that the messengers included the prophets who had testified of him in the flesh. Some of those messengers might have included Peter, Paul, Alma, John, Joseph, Nephi. Having read this vision of, the, of President Smith and knowing the missionaries assigned to do this work, one would think it would be highly motivational for each of us to keep our covenant to find the names of our deceased family members and fill all the available hours in every temple. I can with some confidence report there is still available time in many temples to accommodate the Council of the First Presidency to put aside some of our leisure time and devote more time to performing ordinances in the temple. I pray that we will be responsive to this invitation to come to the door of the temple. I feel humbled at the opportunity to serve in this trusted calling and pray that I might act upon my covenants with the Lord and be submissive to the direction of the Spirit. I declare my solemn witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration of His gospel through the Prophet Joseph Smith. I express my love for the covenants and ordinances of the temple and commitment to redoubling my effort to participate in these holy houses of God. I know, brothers and sisters, as we make and keep sacred covenants, the Lord will bring us to His sacred presence. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, 안녕하십니까? Good afternoon. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. If we summarize the history of the scriptures, we can say that it is the history of sacrifice. We can find the wonderful examples in the scriptures of those who sacrificed their lives in order to keep their faith and testimonies. 
One example is from the story of Elma and Amulek when they had to watch with the pain the people of Ammoniah who were thrown into the fire and died but kept their faith. Also, we think of Jesus Christ who condescended to come down from his Father's presence to this earth and made a sacrifice to save the world through more severe pain than anyone else has ever endured. In this last dispensation of the gospel, many pioneers lost their lives and made the ultimate sacrifice to keep their faith. Today, we are not likely to be asked to make such a big sacrifice as giving up our lives. But we can see many examples of saints who make a painful sacrifice to keep their faith and testimonies alive. Maybe it is more difficult to make the small sacrifice in our daily lives. For instance, it could be regarded as a small sacrifice to keep the Sabbath day holy, to read the scriptures daily, or to pay our tithing. But this sacrifice cannot be easily made unless we have the mind and determination to make the sacrifice that is needed to be able to keep those commandments. As we make these small sacrifices, we are compensated by more blessings from the Lord. King Benjamin said, And ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever ever. And as his own people, he encourages us so that we will receive more blessings as we continue to obey the Lord's word. I think that the very first blessing coming from sacrifice is the, the joy that we can feel when we pay the price. Perhaps the very thought that the sacrifice itself could be a blessing become a blessing. When we have that kind of thought and feel the joy, we might have received the blessing already. Recently, I have found that kind of blessing from the saints in Korea who participated in the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the dedication of the church in Korea and the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's birth. I would like to tell you briefly about their sacrifices and the joy and blessing they received. To celebrate the gospel which gave hope and courage to people in Korea who were hurt so much by the Korean War, the members started to prepare for this celebration more than a year ago. Many of the members in Korea, primary, young men, young women, young single adults, Relief Society sisters, and others gathered together to participate for the celebration. They prepared many traditional folk dances, including the flower dance, circle dance, fan dance, farmer dance, and drum dance, as well as taekwondo, drama, volume dance, musical, animation, and choir performances. Because the young men produced such loud drum sound, neighbors complained, and they had to stop practicing. It, <laughs> it was really difficult to practice a long period of time, but they did it with a joy. 
I could not find anyone complaining for their effort and sacrifice when they had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to ride a bus for the joint practice. They felt great joy and gratitude for the blessing of the Lord and for the opportunity to show their appreciation. Also, many returned missionaries from overseas came back to Korea with their wives and children for this celebration. They made a sacrifice when they came to Korea on their missions long time ago, but this time they made another sacrifice of time and money to bring their families and participate in the celebration during the hot summer. But they rejoiced and were grateful for all the celebrations in which they participated. To encourage the Korean saints and other people, the Lord sent his prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, to Korea. He himself made a great sacrifice for this trip by, by scheduling a 14 days around the world trip and came to Korea to meet with the saints whom he has loved for many years and to personally convey the special love of the Lord. Nobody felt that this was a sacrifice. Instead, we had tears of joy and gratitude. This is the blessing we are talking about, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid of sacrifice. Please enjoy the happiness and blessings from the sacrifice itself. Occasionally, there is a time gap between the sacrifice and blessings. The sacrifice may come according to our time schedule, but blessing may not come by ours, but by the Lord's calendar. Because of this, Lord comfort us by saying, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. The blessings surely come to us. Please remember that sacrifice itself might be a form of a blessing. Let us make the sacrifice of small things. When we read the Book of Mormon while rubbing our sleepy eyes, let us remember that we are following the counsel of our prophet and receive the joy that comes from that knowledge. We, may, we have many bills to pay, but when we pay tithing, let us feel joy for having the opportunity to donate something to the Lord. And then, great blessings will poured on out, poured out on us. It will be just like our surprise and joy when we receive an unexpected gift. As President Spence W. Kimball said, as we give, we find that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of the heaven, and in the end, we learn it was no sacrifice at all. I pray that we will all become saints willing to sacrifice and become eligible for the Lord's special blessings. The Lord will watch over us so that it will not be too difficult to endure any sacrifice. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This year, we are commemorating the 200th anniversary of the birth of the Prophet Joseph Smith.
To the world we testify that he was the prophet of God foreordained to bring about the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This he did under the direction of our Savior, who said to an earlier prophet, My name is Jehovah, and I know the end from the beginning. Therefore my hand shall be over thee. I acknowledge the Lord's hand in the restoration of the gospel. Through the inspired sacrifices of God's children through the ages, the foundation of the restoration was laid, and the world is preparing for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His gospel was first established on earth, beginning with Adam, and has been taught in every dispensation through such prophets as Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and others. Each of these prophets foretold of the coming of Jesus Christ to atone for the sins of the world. Those prophecies have been fulfilled. The Savior did establish His Church. He called His apostles and established His priesthood. Most importantly, He laid down His life and took it up, that all will rise again, thus carrying the atoning sacrifice. That was not the end. After the Savior's resurrection, he commissioned his apostles to lead the Church and administer gospel ordinances. Faithful to this charge, they were persecuted, and some were eventually martyred. As a result, the Lord's priesthood authority was no longer on earth, and the world fell into spiritual darkness. In the centuries that followed, God's children had the light of Christ, could pray, and could feel the influence of the Holy Ghost. But the fullness of the gospel had been lost. There was no one left on earth with the power and authority to lead the Church or perform the sacred ordinances such as baptism, conferral of the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the saving ordinances of the temple. Almost everyone was denied access to the scriptures and most people were illiterate. Making the scriptures available and helping God's children learn to read them was the first step to the restoration of the gospel. Originally, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, languages unknown to the common people throughout Europe. Then, after 400 years after the Savior's death, the Bible was translated by Jerome into Latin. But still the scriptures were not widely available. Copies had to be written by hand, usually by monks, each taking years to complete. Then through the influence of the Holy Ghost, an interest in learning began to grow in the hearts of people. The Renaissance, or rebirth, spread throughout Europe. In the late 1300s, a priest named John Wycliffe initiated a translation of the Bible from Latin to English. Because English was then an emerging, unrefined language, Church leaders deemed it unsuitable to convey God's word. Some leaders were certain that if people could read and interpret the Bible for themselves, its doctrine would be corrupted. Others feared that people with independent access to the scriptures would not need the Church and cease to support it financially. Consequently, Wycliffe was denounced as a heretic and treated accordingly. After he died and was burned, 
His bones were dug up and burned again. But God's work could not be stopped. While some were inspired to translate the Bible, others were inspired to prepare the means to publish it. In 1455, Johannes Gutenberg had invented a press with movable type, and the Bible was one of the first books he printed. For the first time, it was possible to print multiple copies of the scriptures at a cost many could afford. Meanwhile, the inspiration of God also rested upon explorers. In 1492, Christopher Columbus set out to find a new path to the Far East. Columbus was led by the hand of God in his journey, and he said, God gave me the faith and afterwards the courage. These inventions and discoveries set the stage for further contributions. In 1509, young William Tyndall enrolled at Oxford University. There he studied the work of Bible scholar Erasmus, who believed that the scriptures are the food of a man's soul and must permeate the very depths of his heart and mind. Through his studies, Tyndall developed a love for God's word and desire that all God's children be able to feast on it for themselves. At about that time, a German priest and professor named Martin Luther identified 95 points of error in the Church of his day, which he boldly sent in a letter to his superiors. In September, Huldrych Zwingli printed 67 articles of reform. John Calvin in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, and many others assisted in this effort. A reformation had begun. Meanwhile, William Tyndall had become a trained priest and was fluent in eight languages. He believed a direct translation from Greek and Hebrew into English would be more accurate and readable than Wycliffe's translation from Latin. So Tyndall, enlightened by the Spirit of God, translated the New Testament and a portion of the Old Testament. His friends warned him that he would be killed for doing so, but he was undaunted. Once, while disputing with a learned man, he said, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. End of quote. Eventually, Tyndall, like others, were killed for his efforts, strangled and burned at the stake near Brussels. But the belief for which he gave his life was not lost. Millions have come to experience for themselves what Tyndall taught throughout his life. The nature of God's word is that whosoever read it, it will begin immediately to make him every day better and better till he be grown into a perfect man. Turbulent political times brought change. Because of a disagreement with the Church of Rome, King Henry VIII declared himself the head of the Church in England and required that copies of the English Bible be placed in every parish church. Hungry for the gospel, people flocked to these churches, reading the scriptures to one another until their voices gave out. The Bible was also used as a primer to teach reading. Though martyrdoms had continued across Europe, 
the dark night of ignorance was coming to an end. Declared one preacher before being burned, we shall this day light a candle, such that by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out." End of quote. We express gratitude to all who lived in England and throughout Europe, who helped kindle that light. By God's grace, the light grew brighter. Aware of the divisions within his own country, English King James I agreed to a new official version of the Bible. It has been estimated that over 80 percent of William Tyndall's translations of the Old and New Testaments were retained in King James Version. In time, that version would find its way to a new land and be read by a 14-year-old plowboy. Name Joseph Smith. Is it any wonder that the King James Version of the approved Bible of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is with us today? Religious persecution in England continued under James's son Charles, and many were prompted to seek freedom in new lands. Among them, the pilgrims who landed in the Americas in 1620, the very part of the world Columbus had explored over a hundred years earlier. Other colonists soon followed, including those like Roger Williams, founder and later governor of Rhode Island, who continued to search for Christ's true church. Williams said there was no regularly constituted Church of Christ on earth, nor any person authorized to administer any church ordinance, nor could there be until new apostles were sent by the great, great head of the Church for whose coming he was seeking. Over a century later, such religious feelings guided founders of a new nation on the American continent. Under God's hand, they secured religious freedom for every citizen with an inspired Bill of Rights. Fourteen years later, on December 23, 1805, the Prophet Joseph Smith was born. The preparation was nearing its completion for the Restoration. As a young man, Joseph was called up to serious reflection on the subject of religion. Because he was born in the land of religious freedom, he could question which of all churches was right. And because the Bible had been translated into English, he could seek an answer from the Word of God. He read in the book of James, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and did as directed. In answer to his prayer, God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ appeared to him. This humble farm boy was the prophet chosen by God to restore the ancient Church of Jesus Christ and his priesthood in these latter days. This restoration was to be the last dispensation of the fullness of times restoring all of the priesthood blessings which man could possess on earth. With this divine commission, his work was not to reform, nor was it to protest what was already on earth. It was his to restore what had been on earth and had been lost. The Restoration, begun with the first vision in 1820, continued with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. 
On September 21, 1823, Joseph Smith was visited by the angel Moroni, who taught him of an ancient record containing the fullness of the everlasting gospel preparatory to the second coming of the Messiah. Recorded on plates of gold, the Book of Mormon gives an account of Christ's ministry in the Western Hemisphere, just as the Bible records his life and ministry in Israel. Joseph received the gold plates four years later and in December 27th began to translate the Book of Mormon. While translating, Joseph Smith and his scribe Oliver Crowdry read about baptism. Their desire to receive this blessing for themselves prompted the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood on May 15, 1829, under the hands of John the Baptist. There followed the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, which was bestowed on Joseph and Oliver by the apostles Peter, James, and John, who held the keys. After centuries of spiritual darkness, the power and authority to act in God's name to perform sacred ordinances and lead His Church was once again upon the earth. The first printed copies of the Book of Mormon were published on March 26, 1830. A few weeks later, on April 6, Christ's true Church in these latter days was once again organized at the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. in Fayette, New York. Describing the effects of these events upon the world, Apostle Parley P. Pratt wrote, The morning breaks, the shadows flee, Lo, Zion's standard is unfurled, The dawning of a brighter day, Majestic rises on the world. The long night was finally over, and revelations streamed forth, resulting in additional scripture. The Doctrine and Covenants was accepted by the Church on August 17, 1835. The Pearl of Great Price also began in that year. Further authority to act in the name of the Lord soon followed. The Kirkland Temple was dedicated March 27, 1836. In that temple, the Savior appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, followed by the appearances of Moses, Elias, and Elijah, who gave additional priesthood keys to the prophet. This gospel light would never again be taken from the earth. In 1844, Joseph conferred, Joseph Smith conferred all the keys of the priesthood upon Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and their fellow apostles. The prophet said, I have lived until I have seen all this burden which has rested on my shoulders, rolled onto the shoulders of other men. The keys of the kingdom are planted on the earth to be taken away no more forever, no matter what becomes of me. Three months later, sadly, on June 27, Joseph Smith the prophet and his brother Hiram were martyred at Carthage, Illinois. Elder John Taylor, who was with the prophet when he was martyred, testified of him, Joseph Smith the prophet and seer of the Lord has done more, save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world, than any other man that ever lived in it. I testify that the work of the prophet Joseph Smith is the Savior's work. In the Lord's service, the path is not always easy, 
It often requires sacrifices, and we will likely experience adversity. But in some, in serving Him, we discover that His hand is truly over us, and so it will be as it was for Wycliffe, Tyndall, and thousands of others who prepared the way of the Restoration. So it was for the Prophet Joseph Smith and all who helped usher in the restored gospel. And so again will it be for us. The Lord expects us to be as faithful and as devoted, as courageous as those who went before us. They were called to give their lives for the gospel. We are called to live our lives for the same purpose. In these last days, we have special reason to do so. Before that sacred night in Bethlehem, the events in the history of the words of the prophets of all dispensations prepared the way for the first coming of the Lord and His Atonement. Similarly, history and prophecy laid the groundwork for the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. Do we have the eyes to see the events and prophecies of our times are preparing us for the Savior's second coming. I bear special witness that our Savior Jesus Christ lives. I testify that His hand has been over this work of the Restoration from before the foundation of this world and will continue till His second coming, that each of us will prepare ourselves to greet Him is my humble prayer. In His holy name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, I extend love and greetings to each of you. From the brethren, I express gratitude for your goodness, for your many generous acts of kindness, for your prayers and sustaining influence in our lives. Our challenges are like yours. We are all subject to sorrow and suffering, to disease and death. Through times good and bad, the Lord expects each of us to endure to the end as we all go forward together in His sacred work. The brethren realize the importance of your thoughtful consideration, so lovingly offered and gratefully received. We love you and pray for you as you pray for us. I express special gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thankful for His loving kindness and for His open invitation to come unto Him. I marvel at His matchless power to heal. I testify of Jesus Christ as the Master Healer. It is but one of many attributes that characterize His incomparable life. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Creator, the Great Jehovah, the Promised Emmanuel, our atoning Savior and Redeemer, our Advocate with the Father, our Great Exemplar. And one day we will stand before Him as our just and merciful Judge. As the Master Healer, Jesus directed His friends to go and tell what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. 
The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John repeatedly report that Jesus went about preaching the gospel and healing all types of sickness. When the risen Redeemer appeared to the people of ancient America, he mercifully invited those afflicted in any manner to come unto him and be healed. Marvelously, his divine authority to heal the sick was conferred upon worthy priesthood bearers in earlier dispensations, and again in these latter days when his gospel has been restored in its fullness. We can also access his healing power through prayer. I'll never forget an experience that Sister Nelson and I had about three decades ago with President Spencer W. Kimball and his beloved Camilla. We were in Hamilton, New Zealand for a large conference with the Saints. I was not a general authority at that time. I had been invited to participate in this and similar meetings in other Pacific Islands while serving as general president of the Sunday School. And as a doctor of medicine, I had attended President and Sister Kimball for many years. I knew each of them very well, inside and out. A Saturday evening cultural program had been prepared for this conference by local youth of the Church. Unfortunately, President and Sister Kimball both became very ill, each with a high fever. After receiving priesthood blessings, they rested at the nearby home of the President of the New Zealand Temple. President Kimball asked his counselor, President N. Eldon Tanner, to preside at the cultural event and to excuse President and Sister Kimball. Sister Nelson went with President and Sister Tanner and other leaders to the event, while President Kimball's secretary, Brother D. Arthur Haycock, and I watched over our feverish friends. While President Kimball was sleeping, I was quietly reading in his room. Suddenly, President Kimball was awakened he asked, Brother Nelson, what time is this evening's program to begin? At 7 o'clock, President Kimball. What time is it now? It's almost 7, I replied. President Kimball quickly said, Tell Sister Kimball we're going. <laughs> I checked President Kimball's temperature. It was normal. I took Sister Kimball's temperature. It was also normal. They quickly dressed and got into an automobile. We were driven to the stadium of the Church College of New Zealand. As the car entered the arena, there was a very loud shout that erupted spontaneously. It was most unusual. After we took our seats, I asked Sister Nelson about that sudden sound. She said that when President Tanner began the meeting, he dutifully excused President and Sister Kimball because of illness. Then one of the young New Zealanders was called upon to pray. With great faith, he gave what Sister Nelson described as a rather lengthy but powerful prayer. He so prayed, We are 3,000 New Zealand youth. We are assembled here 
having prepared for six months to sing and dance for thy prophet, wilt thou heal him and deliver him here? After the amen was pronounced, the car carrying President Sister Kimball entered the stadium. They were identified immediately and instantly. Everyone shouted for joy. I had witnessed the healing power of the Lord. I had also witnessed revelation as received and responded to by His living prophet. I recognize that on occasion some of our most fervent prayers may seem to go unanswered. We wonder why. I know that feeling. I know the fears and tears of such moments. But I also know that our prayers are never ignored. Our faith is never unappreciated. I know that an all-wise Heavenly Father's perspective is much broader than is ours. While we know of our mortal problems and pain, He knows of our immortal progress and potential. If we pray to know His will and submit ourselves to it with patience and courage, Heavenly healing can take place in His own way and time. Afflictions can come from spiritual as well as physical causes. Alma the Younger remembered that his sin was so painful that he wished to become extinct, both soul and body, that he might not be brought to stand in the presence of God to be judged of his deeds. At such times, how can we be healed by Him? We can more fully repent. We can become more fully converted. Then the Son of Righteousness can more fully bless us by His healing hand. Early in His mortal ministry, Jesus announced that He had been sent to heal the brokenhearted. Wherever He taught them, his pattern was consistent. As I quote his words spoken at four different times and locations, note the pattern. To people of the Holy Land, the Lord said that his people should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. To people of ancient America, the resurrected Lord extended this invitation. Return unto me, repent of your sins, and be converted, that I may heal you. To leaders of His Church, He taught, Continue to minister, for ye know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I shall heal them. Later, during the restitution of all things, the Lord taught the Prophet Joseph Smith regarding the pioneers. After their temptations and much tribulation, behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them, 
And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted, and I will heal them. The sequence of his pattern is significant. Faith, repentance, baptism, a testimony, and enduring conversion lead to the healing power of the Lord. Baptism is a covenant act, a sign of a commitment and a promise. Testimony develops when the Holy Ghost gives conviction to the earnest seeker of the truth. True testimony fosters faith. It promotes repentance and obedience to God's commandments. Testimony engenders enthusiasm to serve God and fellow human beings. Conversion means to turn with. Conversion is a turning from the ways of the world to and staying with the ways of the Lord. Conversion includes repentance and obedience. Conversion brings a mighty change of heart. Thus, a true convert is born again, walking with a newness of life. As true converts, we are motivated to do what the Lord wants us to do and to be whom He wants us to be. The remittance of sins, which brings divine forgiveness, heals the spirit. How do we know if we are truly converted? Self-examination tests are available in the scriptures. One measures the degree of conversion prerequisite to baptism. Another measures our willingness to serve others. To his disciple Peter, the Lord said, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Willingness to serve and strengthen others stands as a symbol of one's readiness to be healed. John the Beloved declared, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. What power! Only the Master Healer could take away the sin of the world. Our debt to Him is incalculably great. Well do I remember an experience while speaking to a group of missionaries. After I had invited questions, one elder stood. With tears in his eyes, he asked, Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? I asked the elder to open his book of hymns and recite words from How Great Thou Art. He read, And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then I asked this elder to read from reverently and meekly now. These words are particularly poignant because they are written as the Lord would express His own answer to the very question that had been asked. 
Think of me, thou ransomed one. Think what I for thee have done. With my blood that dripped like rain, sweat in agony of pain, with my body on the tree, I have ransomed even thee. Oh, remember what was done, that the sinner might be one. On the cross of Calvary, I have suffered death for thee. Jesus suffered deeply because he loves us deeply. He wants us to repent and be converted so that he can fully heal us. When sore trials come upon us, it's time to deepen our faith in God, to work hard, and to serve others. Then he will heal our broken hearts. He will bestow upon us personal peace and comfort. Those great gifts will not be destroyed even by death. The gift of resurrection is the Lord's consummate act of healing. Thanks to Him, each body will be restored to its proper and perfect frame. Thanks to Him, no condition is hopeless. Thanks to Him, brighter days are ahead, both here and hereafter. Real joy awaits each of us on the other side of sorrow. I testify that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, the Master Healer, in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.